0: You're listening to the Restless Wanderer podcast by Paul Coulter and this is part 10 of the series in Matthew's Gospel. Matthew chapter 5 verse 33 Again you have heard that it was said to those of old you shall not swear falsely but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you do not take an oath at all either by heaven for it is the throne of God or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. We'll pause reading after verse 37 of Matthew chapter 5. Now, as we move into these verses, it's very clear from the opening word of verse 33 again that we're continuing in the same theme as Jesus has been speaking on preceding this. We saw in Matthew 5 verse 17 that Jesus said he had not come to abolish the law or the prophets, but to fulfil them. And we spoke uh, about what that might mean for Jesus to fulfil it in his own life, Uh, through his death and resurrection, bringing it to completion, but also in his teaching, restoring the standard of the law where people had lessened it. And we saw the examples of anger uh, equating to murder. You can't say, well, I'm not guilty if you haven't murdered someone, if you've harboured anger in your heart to someone uh, and dismissed him as a fool. Uh, Lust, lusting is on a par with committing adultery. And then divorce, Uh, In verses 31 and 32, Jesus restores the standard where some of the rabbis, teachers of his time, had made divorce an easy thing. Jesus restores it to a hard thing, something that is undesirable. And here again in verses 33 to 36 or 37, his attention shifts to the issue of oaths. Now, this was clearly an issue for Jewish people of their time. It's not something that we record Jesus speaking about in the other Gospels. Matthew distinctively records it both here in the Sermon on the Mount and also uh, later on in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 23, verses 16 to 22. And there uh, Jesus is um, talking about the, uh, the Pharisees their hypocrisy and the woes that um, are declared upon them and he declares a woe because of uh, their attitude to oaths verses 16 to 22. Um, We'll come back to those verses in just a moment but we know from other Jewish writings that uh, the question of, of oaths was significant in Judaism It was uh, something that was debated amongst rabbis. There are significant uh, passages of Jewish rabbinic uh, writings. The Mishnah, which uh, talk at length about oaths and vows, uh, and particularly the question of when is an oath binding on the person? When can a person be released from it? When are they obliged to fulfil what they have vowed or uh, made the oath to do? And really that is what lies behind what Jesus is saying here. I think that becomes clear in Matthew 23, verses 16 to 22. Let me read those verses to you now. Woe to you blind guides who say, if anyone swears by the temple, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by his oath. And whoever swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. Now, those verses uh, may help us to understand what the issue was with oaths in the time of Jesus. What he's saying is that the the rabbis, and we see this in other rabbinic writings, they had a way of uh, concocting oaths that were not binding. And so uh, whether they literally did what Jesus is saying or whether he's making up exaggerated examples, but they might have sworn by the temple and then said, oh no, I swore by the temple, that's not binding. But if I had sworn by the gold of the temple, that would have been binding. And similarly, I swore by the altar, but not by the sacrifice. Or perhaps even I swore by heaven, but not by God. And of course, in Judaism, Uh, Both then and even for some Orthodox Jews today, the name of God is so sacred that it's often substituted with the word heaven. That's almost certainly what Matthew does in his gospel when he talks about the kingdom of heaven. So heaven is a substitute for the name of God. But this idea that an oath is not binding if it doesn't use a particular form of words was clearly commonplace amongst Jewish teachers uh, in Jesus' day. And coming back to Matthew chapter 5 there the examples that Jesus gives are don't take an oath he says by heaven for it is the throne of God. You can't swear by heaven and say that it's not binding by God because it is God's throne. You can't swear by the earth because it is God's footstool. That's an echo of Old Testament passages that talk about the, the earth as the footstool of God. Um, and Then don't swear by Jerusalem. It's the city of the great king. So people were were saying, well, we've sworn by these lesser things, but Jesus is saying, no, when you make an oath, you make it before God, even if you invoke something else other than God, uh, because God is the creator of all of these things. Even if you make an oath by your own head, verse 36, where the implication would tend to be if I If I uh, break this oath, then may judgment come upon my head. That's ridiculous, Jesus said. You are so powerless. You can't change the colour of even one hair of your head. So how do you think that you are a standard by which your oath could be held? This idea of oaths uh, betrays a wrong understanding of who God is, a wrong understanding of what truthfulness is, a wrong understanding of our own significance and power. It's really a a way of justifying to ourselves our own um, distortions of the truth, our own untrustworthiness. Jesus has no time for it. He says, you've heard it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you've sworn. Now that is not a direct quote from the Old Testament, unlike the statements about uh, adultery and um, divorce and murder that he's previously commented on. These words do not appear in that form in the Old Testament, but there are a number Of passages in the law Leviticus 19 verse 12 numbers 30 verse 2 Deuteronomy 23 verse 21 that use very similar words that clearly uh, warn people against breaking an oath Um, and then the same theme comes up in Psalm 50 verses verse 14 and Zechariah 8 verse 17 so um, there, there is clearly a biblical principle that if you make an oath you must keep it And of course, having said that, I mean, oaths do appear in the Old Testament, and there is no sense there in which the oath itself is wrong or is a problem. The Apostle Paul also uses words that come close to an oath, uh, charging people before God and and before his holy angels, for example. So uh, why is that contradicting what the Lord Jesus is saying here in Matthew 5? Well, uh, no, I don't think it is. Uh, what jesus says is that what jesus is saying is that you don't on one hand you don't need to make an oath to to be trustworthy his disciples should simply be able to say yes or no and people should be able to trust their word and we certainly to turn that around should not be finding ways out of oaths or justifying dishonesty or lack of trustworthiness on the basis of the form of words that we used. We should be simple yes or no people. People whose word can be trusted. As James puts it, let your yes be yes and your no be no. Now again, oaths I think therefore in themselves are not wrong. Or vows are not necessarily wrong. Jesus uses both words uh, here. but um, Or swearing, rather. He doesn't use the word vow, but swearing uh, and oaths, if it's that idea of assuring somebody of the truth of what we say. Even God himself did that with Abraham in uh, Genesis 22 having already made a promise to Abraham and then made it into a covenant and then uh, in chapter 22 he makes an oath by himself. So if God makes oaths it is not wrong for us to make an oath that's not what Jesus is saying here but, but God makes an oath by himself, not by some lesser standard. When we make an oath, we are making it before God. If we make a vow to God, we're making the vow to him. We don't need to use other wording. And we don't use a vow or an oath because uh, we mightn't be held to it otherwise. When God made an oath to Abraham, he didn't do it because there was a question mark over whether God would stay true to his word. God didn't need to make a promise he didn't need to say anything. He would do what he would do in any case. God communicated it to Abraham and put it in the form of a promise and of a covenant and of an oath so that Abraham would know that he could trust God. It was God's way of affirming Abraham's faith, of drawing Abraham's faith out. Now, I think there may be situations where, today for us where making an oath is necessary to assure somebody else of our trustworthiness, particularly in a courtroom of course, that's one of the places where we might be asked formally to take an oath on the Bible or uh, by some other standard. And in that situation we do it so that we can assure other people of our truthfulness. Of course somebody who intends to lie will probably be quite happy lying about the oath in any case so it doesn't really give assurance at least not to people who don't hold in high esteem the thing that they're swearing on in uh, in the days when swearing on the bible was introduced of course most people regarded the bible as the word of god and even if they weren't practicing christians had a high regard for the authority of god and might have been afraid to lie under oath well for the christian We may take that oath to assure the court of our truthfulness, but we don't need to take that oath. We should be as honest when we're not under oath as we would be under oath. And uh, similarly, when we're talking with people, we should be known as people of our word. When we distort when we use oaths to uh, justify our own lack of trustworthiness or our own dishonesty, that comes from evil or perhaps from the evil one, the devil. We're doing the work of Satan, we are a liar and he was a liar from the beginning. Now again I know some Christians may read these verses and say well actually I shouldn't make any oaths or I should never have to say I promise Uh, And if they want to say, no, I'll never do that, I think that's fine, that's legitimate. I think there is space for Christians to use forms of words like I promise you, uh, or I I swear to you that I will do this, uh, to make vows, for example, in marriage, or to make an oath in court. But again, that should not be because otherwise we would not be bound to our word. It should simply be about assuring other people of our trustworthiness. The reality is that we should be people of our word. And so what Jesus is doing here is telling us that God's purpose is not simply, again, that we tick a box to say, well, I haven't sworn by God and not kept it, so I'm okay, no no the question is am I reliable trustworthy am I a truthful person am I honest and Christians ought to be honest people because God is honest truthful and trustworthy Let's read on then Matthew chapter 5 verse 38 You have heard it heard that it was said an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth But I say to you do not resist the one who is evil but if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Again, we'll pause after verse 42 of Matthew chapter 5. Now, Here, Jesus again says, you have heard that it was said. And again, he's quoting directly from the Old Testament. That is uh, from Exodus 21, verse 24, the biggest 24, verse 20, Deuteronomy 19, verse 21. An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth is a fundamental principle in the Old Testament law. Now to us, particularly because we know what Jesus says here, it might seem like a negative thing. But, of course, within the Old Testament law, it was a very good thing. It's known as the lex talionis. Literally, that's the Latin for the law of retaliation or retribution. So the idea of the the eye for an eye, the lex talionis, is that the punishment must fit the crime. That is a very good principle. You see, in the ancient world into which God gave his law to Moses... Uh, people didn't have that kind of assurance. The king's word or the word of whoever was in power was law. And and uh, punishments were, were vastly disproportionate to the crime. You, you could be executed for minor offences. What the Old Testament law does is to lay down the principle that there should be justice, fairness in how Uh, crimes are punished. That was a very good thing. It's something we would appreciate in our legal system today as well. Uh, But so what is it that Jesus has the problem with? Well, it's not the principle itself. Again, uh, we we, we see that Jesus in in this whole section is not criticising the Old Testament. He's already said he is upholding the Old Testament. So what is it that Jesus has an issue with here? Well, it's how people were applying that law. This principle that was to be used in the courtroom in Israel, whenever a person was being judged for a crime, had been taken by people and was being used in interpersonal relationships. In other words, uh, I will do back to you what you did to me taking vengeance, taking revenge, which actually is something that the Old Testament law forbade individuals to do. In Deuteronomy 32 verse 35 it says, vengeance is mine, this is God speaking, and recompense for the time when their foot shall slip for the day of their calamity is at hand and their doom comes swiftly. And that statement, Vengeance is Mine, is quoted by the Apostle Paul in Romans 12, verse 19. And again, in, in the book of Hebrews, uh, chapter 10, verse 30, the writer there quotes it in Romans 12. It's in the context of teaching, very like what we've just read in Matthew, about not individuals not taking revenge on an individual who wrongs them. In Hebrews 10, it's uh, about how God will judge his people and hold them to account. So here in in Matthew, Jesus is saying in Matthew 5, um, you know, you don't have to take revenge. You shouldn't take revenge on individuals. But also the, the standard of the law that requires that punishment does not mean that there is no room for mercy or for grace. And just because the person deserves that punishment does not mean that they must receive that punishment in full. But there's also a wider context here. So whilst within the people of Israel, God's standard of, of justice was very clear. The crime fits the, or the punishment fits the crime. Uh, and that's not something Jesus was arguing against, uh, although he is also encouraging mercy. And uh, that, I suppose, the law is, is uh, to be conducted by the courts, if you like, by the judges or the elders In Israel, not by the individual taking vengeance. That's important because when we take revenge individually, it eats into us and destroys us. But also because vengeance tends to drive us to to exact a greater punishment than is fair. Uh, And so we must leave that to the proper authorities. But the issue here in Matthew is not simply to do with how God's people relate to one another. The issue here is to do with how they relate to their enemies. Jesus says, do not resist the one who is evil. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other. Also, one of the most famous sayings of Jesus, I think, turn the other cheek. It's a hard saying, isn't it? It's hard to think of doing it. But what Jesus is saying is what the Apostle Paul also says in Romans 12, that you cannot overcome evil with evil. If you repay evil with evil, you just have more evil. There is something greater at stake here, which is to overcome the evil that is done to you by blessing your enemy. More on that later in the Sermon on the Mount from Jesus. But the, the, who is this enemy that is in view? Well, in verse 40, it says, if anyone would sue you and take your, your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. That seems to be to do with people who have a, a legal case against us, people who are uh, exacting justice against us or perhaps unfairly uh, pursuing us and suing to take our, our tunic. We may want to take revenge, but Jesus says, no, give him your cloak as well. And then verse 41, anyone who forces you to go one mile, go two miles. That seems to have in mind the Roman soldiers. It's been said that Roman soldiers had the authority to compel Jewish people to carry their their load for one mile. The only other time this verb is used in the New Testament, Uh, if someone forces you or requires you is uh, when Simon of Cyrene carries Jesus' cross in Matthew 27 verse 32 and also in Mark's parallel passage. So there again it's the Roman soldiers who have the authority to compel Simon to carry that load for Jesus. But Jesus says if someone forces you to go one mile then you willingly go with him two miles. The principle here is, is of not being quick to seek vengeance, but being quick to bless others. The principle, as we as I said, is said in, in Romans 12, that we don't overcome evil with evil, but through blessing. The principle that we can do good to those who might seek to harm us. This is the way of the kingdom of God. This is the way of meekness. It's the way of the person who is pursuing righteousness and hungering and thirsting for it. Verse 42, give to the one who begs from you. Do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Now, again, I think uh, I don't want to soften the impact of what Jesus is saying because these words are meant to be challenging to us. They're meant to give us a sense of what it would mean for our righteousness, as Jesus said earlier in the chapter, to surpass that of the Pharisees and the scribes. That righteousness is not a tick box exercise. I've not done harm to anybody else. I've kept that law because I didn't commit adultery. No, I need to examine my heart. Or I've kept the law because um, I give the person what they deserve. No, give them more than they deserve. God's kingdom goes beyond the basic requirement, the legal minimum. There is meant to be generosity. There are not meant to be conditions. We're not meant to give grudgingly. We're meant to give freely, generously. We're meant to give without expecting return or requiring it. This is the kind of giving, of course, that God has demonstrated to us. It's grace. It is giving to those whether they deserve or not it is giving that um, is generous it is giving that does not demand return as if god could receive return from us it's challenging and i think uh, the challenge of the old testament is also clear in this deuteronomy 15 verses 7 to 8 Uh, as ever in this place Jesus is not presenting a new standard of ethics in a sense he's restoring the standard of the law psalm 112 verse 9 says the same Uh, you shouldn't turn people away and of course there will be times when we are unable to give in response to somebody who asks but even then we shouldn't uh, be unkind to them. We should digni- dignify them as someone in, who, who is a person under God. And I must say, I find these, these words challenging. I'm not sure about their application when it comes to uh, somebody who is begging on the street, for example. I think there can be an argument there for not giving the person money, um, because money, of course, can be used to, uh, to buy things that will be destructive for the person, alcohol or drugs, or often, sadly, can be passed on to a a gang master or someone who is using or manipulating the person who is actually begging. But uh, if somebody is asking for a cup of coffee or for uh, food, then we should offer that to them. We should do what we can to bless that person. Maybe if somebody asks for money, we could say, well, look, what is it that you need to buy with the money? And if that's something that we have or would would take ourselves, so if they say, well, I want to buy alcohol, then you can say, well, look, I can't give you money for that. Um, If they say, I I need food, then we could say, well, look, let me go and get you food. Um, Now, of course, that also requires a slowing down, doesn't it? To notice that person. One of the most important things with somebody who is begging, especially if they're homeless, is to, to, to treat them as a person, to dignify them. Others might say, well, look, I don't give to the person who is begging, but I give to a charity that works with people in that position. And I suppose that's a a valid thing as well. But again, I don't want to lessen the impact of what Jesus says here in verse 42. And perhaps I need to let that sink into my heart and do greater work in my heart, because my temptation is to put conditions on when I will give to somebody or how I will bless them, to set limits and conditions, to be restrictive, to be uh, holding the strings, to make sure that uh, it doesn't cost me too much, to make sure that uh, people know that I've done it. Of course, all of these things are the very things that Jesus would warn us against. As we go further into the Sermon on the Mount, we'll see Jesus warning against people who do acts of piety Uh, for people to see, because they receive only the reward that they seek, the praise of other people. They don't receive God's approval or praise. And uh, that's the risk, isn't it? That's the temptation. Or, you know, when we give without being generous and we expect or demand something in return, or we complain because the person didn't give us something back or didn't use the thing we gave them the way we thought they should use it, well, in what sense are we being like God? In what sense are we demonstrating the grace of God to someone? Does, not, does God not give freely to us? Does God not give to us so many things that we turn around and use in unhealthy ways for our own glory, not for his, or even in destructive ways? And yet God keeps on giving to us. And so I think the challenge here is how can I become more like him? After all, everything that I have is given to me by him. And so how can I use that to bring blessing to other people? How can I use it to uh, help others and to help others see who he is? So if I can be like him, generous in grace, then people will see his grace through me. I hope that you find it as challenging as I do. Let's hear the words of Jesus never ever justifying ourselves as passing the test, being good enough, but always asking what more should I or could I do? And as we uh, close off this episode, I think that's a fitting challenge to end with. What is it that would be truly Christ-like in my behaviour towards this person, in my honesty and in my generosity?